If you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 41 through 51, a very unique story only seen in this gospel about Jesus when he was 12 years old. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 51, hear now the word of God. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him... To have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said, To him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that your same spirit who inspired these words would help us to understand why you have included them in the holy text, in the the holy Bible of God, for us to examine the actions of Jesus at such a young age, that we might learn about you, we might learn what your call is also in our lives. So we do pray, Father, that the, uh, the meaning and the message in this text would come off the page into our eyes, then our hearts, and transform us, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. In our last meeting, we touched upon how Mary and Joseph were faithful in their, what we might call, religious duties. And this was true even in light of the deplorable, both moral and theological condition of the church at that time. And it is true, we had talked about how a church can descend to the place where it's no longer a church, but a synagogue of Satan. But the weaknesses and imperfections found in churches should not cause us to abandon the church. After all, quote, the church of God is something which he purchased with his own blood. I think that needs to sink down into us, into our hearts, let me see if I can put it this way. I, I, don't, I don't live under the delusion that my children are perfect. They're pretty good kids. I like them. But 
if you hung out with any of them, just like if you hung out with any people, and searched far enough, you would find imperfections. But they're mine. Right? Well, they're my wife, and they belong to us. And I, I love them, and I will defend them, and I will fight for them, and I will continue to seek to instruct them because they belong to me. <clears throat> we can say the same thing about God in his relationship with the church. It belongs to him. He purchased it with his own blood. Now, again, if a church becomes a synagogue of Satan, it's no longer a church. But the idea that, hey, the church just isn't perfect enough for me, well, you know the old saying, right? If you find a perfect church, don't go to it because you'll ruin it. We need to recognize that. And if, and if I, as a sinful person, can love my children and have that disposition toward my children, how much more God for his body? We read in Matthew 7:11, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? I, I have little doubt that we live in an era that undervalues the significance of of what we're doing right now, church, being part of the church. Karen became a member of the church. That's just viewed as so non-essential today among evangelicals. Now, let me just say, I'm not suggesting for a second that the church has no faults. Nor am I saying that you're saved by the church. You know, the old saying, I think, is fairly accurate. Going to church no more makes you a Christian than sleeping in the garage makes you a car. Right? You, you, there's something that needs to happen to your heart in order for you to actually be a Christian. But the church is the means by which the gospel is proclaimed. And it is the means by which the kingdom advances. Right? The gates of hell will not prevail against what? On this rock I will build my church. Westminster Confession, I think, accurately puts it this way, chapter 25, paragraph 2, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion. And that's key there. They profess it. That doesn't necessarily mean they're regenerate, but they're, they're saying the right things. They have a credible profession of faith. What's going on in their hearts? We don't know for sure. We hope that it goes on in their hearts. But those are the ones who profess the true religion and their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God. And this last phrase is the one I want to hit us with. Out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. The, the means by which God normally, I mean, there are exceptions, but we can't let the exception become the rule. The ordinary means throughout the ages that God has brought people into his kingdom, in his true kingdom, is through the vehicle of the church. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1, and 23, talking about Jesus, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. I think we have to have a right disposition 
toward the church. We can't make it something it's not, but we also don't want to have it disappear altogether. Years ago, a movie came out called Stargate. I kind of liked it. And in this movie, there was this gate, this round gate. And if you went through the gate, you, went, you ended up in some foreign world, right? But the gate was in some ancient structure, like a pyramid. And the pyramid in that structure had all sorts of things protecting the gate, you know, booby traps and all this stuff, so that if, in order for you to get to the gate, you had to get through all this stuff because the pyramid was protecting the gate. It made sure the gate was preserved. It made sure that it was pure. It made sure that it was all the things that it is. The pyramid wasn't the gate. Jesus says, I am the gate. Right? Jesus is the gate. But the church, if you will, if you can go with my illustration, the church is the pyramid. It's the, it's the place where Jesus primarily works. And we need to recognize the importance of that. If you read your Bibles, you'll see the church is mentioned quite a bit. And when I say church, I don't mean the invisible church. I'm talking about the visible church. Matter of fact, the visible local church. You'll see all over the place, especially in the New Testament. What we have here with Joseph and Mary and 12-year-old Jesus is them going to the Passover. There were three festivals in Jerusalem which Jewish men were required to go, although the women could go. They weren't excluded from them. So Joseph and Mary are going to Jerusalem. And let me just say, it would not have been an easy journey for them to make. Probably about 70 miles, but... You know, it's not like they got in their Escalade, right? I mean, it's 70 tough miles of journey for this. Yet, what we see are Mary and Joseph being faithful in their attendance to these religious festivals. Now, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, we have no such festivals. We don't, those festivals have disappeared with the Old, with the old Covenant. What we do have is church. Church engaged in worship were all the things that the festivals pointed to or summed up in Christ. I've often thought it might be an interesting sermon series to do all the sermons on all the festivals, all the feasts, and how they point to Christ. Kind of did that a little bit in the Route 66 series, but you know, this idea, this all points to Christ. And, all the, and the, 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 the labyrinth of sacraments in the Old Testament are summed up in baptism in the Lord's Supper. So everything we see in that Old Testament in terms of worship is summed up in what we're doing here this morning. It is the worship service where we see God enthroned in the praises of his people. And it's not something, friends, and I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's not something that we should easily miss. We should have a good reason if we're not going to be at church. Verses 43 through 45. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. All right, so now we get into the current story. Jesus is 12. The family's heading home, you know, probably about a week, you know, trip, you know, the whole trip. 
And we see, you know, the, this translation I have, which is the New King James, probably not a great translation of this word, lingered behind. Because linger, in our parlance, you know, linger is the idea that you're just hanging out longer than you should or something like that. Or you're just lingering. Clearly, we're going to see Jesus wasn't just kind of lingering. Other translations put it, put it differently. But he's not with the caravan. And, um, and I think, you know, our first thought is, how could Mary and Joseph, you know, it's like I named the sermon Home But Not Alone or something like that. You know, that movie, right, Home Alone. It clearly, they're la- they've gone, and then, if, you know, all of a sudden they're like, hey, where's Jesus? And he's not there. And we shouldn't look at that as Mary and Joseph being irresponsible. Apparently it was very common for families and friends to travel together with each other's children. Although I would say you've you got to be careful in that environment. You've got to be careful, I mean, I'll just say, if there's a pool and there's a lot of people and you have small children thinking that other people are watching your kids, that's, that's potentially a very dangerous situation. Because if you're by yourself, you know you're responsible. But if there's a bunch of people, you're thinking, well, somebody will take care of them. Well, I don't think Mary and Joseph were irresponsible. They had family, they had acquaintances, and they traveled as a, as a group. But I think what we have to understand when we look at this story is the anxiety of the event. I recall my own children walking around the block when they were really young and not getting home as quickly as Jan and I thought they should get home. Right, so I mean, I forget how old they were, like probably three, five, and seven, or four, six, and eight, or something like that. I don't know if any of you have had misplaced a child, but it's horrifying. It is a horrifying. I got in my car, and I'll just tell you, I was speeding you know, through the neighborhood. I was interrupting strangers who were in the midst of conversations. I mean, I did, and you know, my wife was in tears. We were going to call the police. I mean, it is something that if any of you have ever experienced, it is a horrifying event. Well, we found them. Or if you talk to them, they have another story. They have the we were not lost story. That entered into its own argument. When are you lost? Are you lost if you know where you are and your parents don't? Anyway, we we haven't really resolved that issue yet. As far as I'm concerned, they were lost. Jesus might have said, I'm not, you know, he's going to sound like I wasn't lost. That's the way he's going to respond. So maybe my kids were right. I shouldn't have just said that. That's not going to help. But I think what Luke is presenting here is a religious situation embroiled in emotion. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we're seeing. With hearts Full, and that's the word they use, with hearts full of anxiety, they head back to Jerusalem, verses 46 and 47. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Three days. And it, It would be three days before they would find him. And we're not really given the details of the process. Somehow, in their search for him, 
they decided to go check out the, the temple. And though it wasn't likely prohibited, it was probably also not the norm for a child uh, his age, 12 years old, to be in this setting. And I get, you know, I get it in my head, right? I, I get, the story is in my head, and I have to say, I have to say that if I were given the opportunity to eyewitness the actions of Christ, I would take this event. I would take this event over walking on water. I would take this event over the feeding of the 5,000. If, if somebody said, hey, you want to see a video of Jesus interacting, I'd be like, I want to see him 12 years old in the middle of the teachers of Israel. That's what I'd like to see. He's sitting there interacting in the midst of teachers, and the word used to describe it is astonishing. They were astonished. You know, history tells us that rabbinic teaching made considerable use of questions on the part of the pupils out of which discussions could arise. That was kind of the way the teaching went. The language used here, according at least to Marshall, implies not just curiosity, but rather probing questions designed to elicit decisions. Like people are in there going, okay, I got I to gotta make a decision. Can you help me? What does the Bible say about that? What should we do about this? Now, sadly, yet obviously appropriately, we're not given the details of the discussions. I, I would like the minutes. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, I can think of a few things more encouraging than a, to a, at least to a teacher or as a teacher myself than questions from those under my pastoral care. I really like that. The people are like, I know you're busy, blah, blah, blah. But when somebody goes, Pastor Paul, I have a question. I, I'm energized by that. It tells me, you know what it tells me? It tells me you're engaged in, in, in many different levels, right? If it's, if it's about the sermon, it tells me that you've been an active listener. You're paying attention. Okay, I heard what you said, but I have a question about what you were teaching. Or it tells me that you're engaged in life, right? And people are challenging your Christian faith. I mean, sometimes my kids, you know, will come up to me and they'll be like, you know, I remember when they were little, you know, they'd come up and they'd ask me questions, and I could tell by the question. Well, they would even tell me. I was talking to my friends. Dad, can you explain predestination? Well, I kind of teach that a lot. Do we believe in Calvinism? Yes, we do. But when they'd ask me that, it's telling me that they were sitting in the backyard, and that's what they were talking about. And I love that. Also, it tells me that perhaps... Just perhaps people have seen the hope that is within you and you've been called to give an answer for that hope. All to say, having questions about the Christian faith is something that the teacher should like. I recall having R.C. Sproul as a teacher in seminary. And I have to tell you, I couldn't get enough of him. Even during the breaks, you know, I go up and pester him. I actually finally concluded that I was becoming a nuisance. But you know what? Those, that's the kind of nuisance we want. 
That's what we want. We want people going, I have a question, I have a question. What do we do about that? How do I organize this? And all that kinds of things. I need a clarity, Pastor Paul, with my Christian faith. I've been reading my Bible. And what I, you know, these are wonderful things. Obviously, many of you know that every Sunday after church, after the sermon, our church is given the opportunity to engage in this type of question and answer activity. I remember starting this years and years ago because what I realized was, you know, you guys, just so you know, you pay for me to be here. You know, it's your tithes that kind of pay my, allow me to be a full-time pastor. And a large number one thing in terms of time commitment that I have as a pastor is studying the Bible and writing sermons. But then I realized that a lot of what I was studying and writing was left, as it were, on the cutting room floor because I couldn't give a three-hour sermon, right? I've got to get this down to about 40 minutes. And then I realized, you know, I've, I've studied a lot more than the presentation, so what I need to do is have an opportunity for people to ask questions that I might have left out, that I didn't engage in the text. Or maybe, just maybe, I didn't say something as clearly as I thought it was. And so somebody might raise their hand and go, you know, Pastor Paul, you said this. What did you mean by that? I didn't really understand when you said that. I think that is so highly valuable. It's valuable for you because you need to figure out what's going on. You need to take advantage of the fact that if there's something you don't understand, you can come here and for an hour ask questions. Now, let me just say this. I realize people don't want to raise their hand and ask questions. I understand there's a nervousness to that. But you can get your phone out, and you can go to branchofhope.org, and you can go to Q&A, and you can text your question and email it, and it'll come right next to the elder or the deacon sitting next to me. And you can do that anonymously if you just don't like asking questions in public. But ask the question. Engage in the Q and A. And you know what else? You know what other value there is to that? It, it's value, valuable to me because it tells me what you know and what you don't know. And as an instructor, that's important. I'm not just giving sermons like for the internet. I'm giving sermons primarily for you. And if there are things that are so clear to you, I don't need to repeat them, I won't repeat them. But there are things that are unclear. I need to kind of make this clear. I think, this is just my opinion, I think every pastor should do this. I think every pastor should have a time of Q&A. And when we have people come to our church to preach, we make them do it. And these, uh, you know, these young candidates, you know, sometimes they're young guys and they're all nervous. They don't want to do it. Like, look, we don't expect you to know every answer to every question. I don't know every answer to every question. But that's no reason to be afraid of the question. If you don't know the answer, you don't know. And you look it up. You answer it next week. The point here is, this was the method used by Jesus. Right? Questions and answers. It's good enough for him. It's good enough for us. Verses 48 and 49. <clears throat> so when they saw him, they were amazed. <clears throat> Excuse me. And his mother said, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. <clears throat> and he said to them, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? 
what a human encounter right, this is. It is just so human. I, I don't doubt that this room that they walked into was intimidating. Talking about too, too afraid to ask a question during Q&A, right? You've got the teachers of Israel, and Mary walks in. She was probably fairly, still fairly young. And, you know, they're astonished. And we're not told exactly how this engagement went. Right? We're not told, well, then she kind of took him outside and talked to him or whatever. So we don't know exactly what it looked like or what it sounded like. I am going to guess, and this is not inspired, I'm going to guess that it was immediate and it was in hushed but intense tones. Why have you done this to us? That's my guess. You can, now you can do your own guess. He may have been the savior of the world, but he was also her little boy. That's the humanity of it, right? And he had just put her, well, both of them, through quite an ordeal. Three days. This might have been just a little foretaste of what Simeon said, right, in his prophecy about Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul also. Okay, you're starting to get a little feel for the difficulty that is ahead of you. This is small compared to what's going to happen. But all of a sudden, being the mother of Jesus is not an easy thing. And Mary's, if I could call it chastisement, is met by the very first recorded words of Jesus. And they were... as. The first of many, many, many difficult words. Why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? <laughs> I think it's just fascinating that what we're going to read is they don't understand what he's talking about. Now, contained in that answer is not a disrespect for his parents but it is a foretaste of things. You know, I mean, this, we have this event, and then you know, we don't have another event until he's 30, but it's almost like you get just a little taste of where his life is, is going. And what we see here is a clear prioritizing of his Father in heaven, even above all earthly authorities. I think, and this is something that in our culture we dismiss pretty easily we were kind of anti-authority, you know. I mean, it probably, I, mean, I remember, you know, I was a child of the 60s, and that, we, you know, disrespect for authorities was kind of beautiful. But it is critical to know who has authority in our lives, what, a, what they have authority over, and to what extent the ultimate authority who is God himself, overrules even legitimate human authorities. Who, who are you under? And in what category are you under them? And what could they possibly seek to tell you to do that would be inconsistent with the ultimate authority who is God? These are really good questions for us to figure out. I recall, you know, 
when I became a Christian as a teenager, talking to my parents, and I, I didn't, I wasn't in the midst of rebellion. I wasn't saying this as, you know, some type of, of you know, rebellious child or something, but really as a matter of elucidation when I figured this out, telling my parents that I had come to know an authority who was over them. And, I, and again, I wasn't saying this because I, I wasn't, you know, I got along with my parents fine. But I remember kind of figuring out, there's an authority, my parents were, prior to me being a Christian, my ultimate authority. But then all of a sudden you open your Bible and you realize, oh no, there is a, there is a king of kings. There is an authority above all authorities. I think in a very preliminary sense, Jesus was preparing even his own parents to endure his task. These first words of Christ, they're loaded. These are loaded words. At first glance, they may seem kind of benign. You know, he's just like, why, why are you even asking me this? I'm, you know, I'm here doing my father's business about, about what my father wants me to do. Doesn't seem all that, you know, strenuous, right? Doesn't seem all that dangerous. But there would come a time that Jesus, with these same words, would push it to the point that it would cost him his life. We read in John 5.18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So whatever it was, you and I could say, well, I'm a child of God. God is my father, our father who art in heaven. The way Jesus was saying it was different. There was something very unique about his relationship with the Father that would eventually, when proclaimed, cost him his life. They wanted to kill him because the way he was saying it, he was making himself what? What does the text say? Equal with God. Verses 50 and 51. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. So this unique father-son relationship, of which I just mentioned, between Jesus and his father in heaven, was just not understood by Mary and Joseph. They didn't get it. Now, I, I wouldn't say that they were entirely unacquainted with Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, Old Testament promises. It wasn't like they didn't know anything. And when we read it, you know, today, you know, you'll call his name Emmanuel, for God is with us. We read it and we're like going, they should have been able to figure it out. I, I, I always um, marvel at people who criticize Augustine. Augustine wasn't perfect. You know, this is a fifth century saint, fifth century scholar. Didn't have, he did not have Google. He didn't have Logos Bible computer. He didn't have all that stuff, right? He's just kind of reading things probably on papyrus or something, you know. And yet, the stuff he wrote is still valuable to, to this day. What a, you know, what a gift Augustine was to the church. And we just kind of we got to understand 
And, and, so, and so as time goes on, things become clear and clearer. I don't think Mary and Joseph at that point, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. But she couldn't have, she could not have recited the Magnificat without some understanding, right? Like she, you know, remember we went through the Magnificat and she's basically quoting the Old Testament over and over. She had this idea of what was going on in terms of what God was doing through her and through her child. But she didn't have a full understanding of it. Jesus would say things and she would just have to scratch her head. And you know what? You know what I, I found interesting is not what's in the text here, but what's not in the text. Because we're not told here that Jesus noticed their confusion and clarified the matter. Because see, that's what I would do. I, I, I don't like it when somebody doesn't understand something. And I'll keep telling you over and over until I feel like you understand it. Talk about being a nuisance until I just am like, do you get it? Sit back to me. He didn't do that. At least we have no record of him doing that. We were told earlier, remember, Mary pondered. Remember we talked about that, when she pondered? That word again, it's not really a great translation. The idea was to throw things together. That's the Greek word there. And it's the idea of systematizing it, trying to figure out how does this all work together? Well, we're, what we are told here is that she kept all these things in her heart. I think some of your versions or translations will say she treasured them. This idea of preserving, keeping, protecting, maintaining, treasuring. She's like, I don't get it, but I, it's in my heart. It's in my mind. I'm, I'm not, just because I don't get it doesn't mean that I'm going to throw it away. You know, kids say in school, when will I ever use that? And maybe there's a time when you'll never use that. But maybe there's a time when you're going to need it and you've thrown it away. Well, I would say this, the word of God, even if you don't understand it, you keep it in your heart. You treasure it. You memorize it. You know it. You can recite it. When we hide the word of God in our hearts, even if we write, and I realize, you know, in our, here, in this event, in my sermon, there are some of you who don't understand some of the things that I'm saying. I, I get that. You know, it's hard to sometimes put a talk together in a room where you know there'll be infants and 90-year-olds. And you're like going, okay, I got to give a lesson. But at the same time, you know, you, 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 you grasp what you can. You hold on to what you can. And you know what? Next week, you'll know a little more. And the week after that, you'll know a little more. And on and on and on. Because you know what? You know when graduation day is from church? That's the day you die. You know, and if I had to go to school until the day I died, I would rather go to graduate school than kindergarten. Right? Because you, you just you want to push it. You want to know more and more. But even if you fail to grasp the fullness of the, of the scriptures, which is far beyond listening to me, what happens when that word of God is memorized, right? You know it, what do we call it? You know it by 
heart, okay? It's in your heart. What you have now is a field seeded. When God can eventually bring growth according to his timing. I think it's a wonderful thing. I know for me when, you know, there's a verse out there or a passage out there that I've never been able to quite figure out. And then I'm sitting by a good teacher. This was like Sproul, right? And they present it in such a way where the light goes on. And I'm like, oh, now I see what that means. It's a, it's a wonderful thing because, and it's, part of it's wonderful just because it's nice to know something. But more than that, because it's telling you something about God. I understand something about God now that I didn't understand a minute ago. And he does that with you and with me according to, our own, according to his timing and our capacity. The Greek phrase ad modem recipientis. The idea here is in proportion to our capacity. God is giving us what we can handle intellectually. You mean there, we have to understand the different levels, right? I mean, I remember when I was in seminary and I was given a book to read by Charles Hodge, the great Princeton professor. Every page, every page had like four different fonts and three different languages. And he didn't, he'd refer to Bible verses, but he wouldn't have written down what Bible verse he was referring to. Because he just figured, if you're a seminary student, you should know this. You should know Greek, Hebrew, Latin, English, and if I quote a verse, I shouldn't have to say 1 Peter 3, 2. You should know where it is. I don't, I don't give that book to eight-year-olds, right? Because, it's, well, maybe some eight-year-olds. We were up here during Q&A, remember a youngster, not eight, but a youngster in our church asked a question and quoted a Bible verse, and one of our deacons kind of elbowed me like, that's got to make you feel good. You know, when you feel, when you see the young people in the church who know the word of God and you can tell that they're working it out, I mean, it's just a, such a wonderful, wonderful experience as a, as a pastor. But here, the point I'm making is we've got a capacity. God has got a timing. We should recognize that in ourselves, right? You, you only know right now what you know right now. Hopefully tomorrow you'll know more. And we need to recognize that in others, right? They know what they know right now, and hopefully by tomorrow they know more. And that's just the way it works. It necessarily has to work that way. The question that I'm going to ask you, above what you know, and above your wisdom, above your knowledge, even above your righteousness, above your, your ethics and morality, above that is, the question I have for you is, what direction are you going in? Not where you are. Where are you, you know, if I were to graph it out, are you going this way or are you going this way? Are you being conformed more into the image of Christ? Or are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind? Or are you becoming more like the world? That's a good thing for us to examine ourselves in terms of the direction we're taking over and above where we've already arrived. As I mentioned previously, our next encounter with Jesus, we're going to jump ahead 18 years. It will be as one ready to be consecrated right, in his baptism. That's, that's the next thing. He's, the ministry now, this three-year ministry, 
really hits full force. But what Luke finishes with in this section is the subjection of Jesus to his parents. We shouldn't gloss over that. In his fulfillment of all righteousness, what is included in that is obedience to parents. If you want to pursue godliness, young people, and not just young people, I don't know if there's an expiration date on honoring your mother and your father, you need, you need to have a right disposition toward those who are in authority over you, mom and dad. Though Jesus, though Jesus was strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the Son of God, he still submitted to his parents. He was wise enough to say things that they didn't even understand. And yet he understood, as a 12-year-old, that it was important for him to submit to his parents. <clears throat> Again, I'll ask, biblically speaking, do you know who the authority figures are in your life and in what categories you are to submit? Do you know those? Jesus seemed to know. It's part of godliness. It may not be the easiest part of godliness. I know enough people in this room to know that some of your parents are very difficult. So you're like, done, finished, disqualified. I think you've got to fight the good fight. And I'm not suggesting that you allow evil in your house. I'm not suggesting that you allow them to, co to come in and, and infect your children and all that stuff. But, uh, but this idea that you're going to be utterly disrespectful towards your parents will not aid you in your pursuit of godliness. <clears throat> of course, as this event hints, Jesus would ultimately submit not to the will of his parents, but to the will of his Father in heaven. That's what they're getting a little taste of. They're like going, we're your parents, and he's like, you don't understand, why, are you even, why is this a question with you? Don't you know I need to be about my Father's business? John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what was that will? Well, we read in the next verse, John 6, 39 and 40, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should not lose, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And I do pray that we're all included in that number. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would seek, even as we see here with Jesus as a young man, on the, the really on the brink of manhood, the desire to know and understand you more fully, that we might all grow in, in wisdom, that your spirit would be mighty upon us. We do recognize this, Father, and we do pray at whatever level we don't recognize that we would, that our submission even to you could not ever complete and accomplish what the Son's submission to the Father completed. And that is that you prepared a body 
for him, that he might go to a cross, that he might die, that we might live, that he would be empty of all things, that we might gain all things, and so may we ever rest in what he has accomplished for us. In his name we pray, amen.